You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. We are heading into the final stretch of 2017. Man, this year went fast. And I've got a question for all of you who are out there listening. I want to know if you're happy. More specifically, I want to know if you're happy at work. Does your job, your career, does it excite you? Does it make you feel fulfilled? Does it make you feel like you have a purpose? I know it might sound idealistic, and no, it's not realistic to think that you are going to love your job every single day. My friend Susan from college said, if you did, they wouldn't have to pay you. But everything I just asked about is possible. It's possible to get there with, I think, a little bit of work. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I am sitting across the table with Catherine Minshew, who is CEO and founder of The Muse. It's a career platform used by 50 million, I said million, millennials to navigate their careers. The site's also used by hundreds of companies looking to hire and attract and retain great talent. She's got a best-selling book called The New Rules of Work, and she's an operating partner at X-Factor Ventures, which is a venture capital fund investing in the next generation of female founders. Catherine, you are busy. (laughs) That is definitely true. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on the show. You know, we met a long time ago at the Today Show, and the muse was really just blossoming at that point. Tell us a little bit about the site, about how far it's come, about where your focus is right now. Yeah, it's funny. You know, when we met, I think we were about 12 full-time employees, maybe a few fewer. And uh, now it's, you know, it's over 120 and growing. So the idea for the Muse really came from my own personal experience. I grew up with one idea of the career I wanted to follow. In my case, it was foreign service or maybe working for the the State Department. When I got into the workforce, I realized that the vision I had of that career was different than the reality. And that led to a really painful realization because all of a sudden I felt lost. I wasn't sure what was next. And um, I ended up in management consulting for a few years, but I kept searching for, you know, how do you find the right fit? Right. Exactly. As you were talking about, it's not only a role that fits your strengths, your preferences, but it's being at an organization where your values align, Mm -hmm. where you really thrive and ideally being on a career path where you can see yourself in a few years. And I think that there's just such magic when all three of those things align. And it's really hard as an individual to figure that out. So, you know, I, I remember after the probably thousandth time, I was looking at some totally mediocre career site mm-hmm. and thinking, like, somebody should do something better than this. It just kind of struck me. What if that person was me? And so um, my co-founders and I started very small. We... Um, I was the only one at the very beginning who had quit my job and and sort of dove in head first. But we just put up a very simple website that connected people to great career advice and helped them learn a little bit more about companies and see inside their offices. And within 
uh, six months, we had a quarter of a million people a month visiting the Muse. Um, and over the last, you know, five or six years, it's really grown to be uh, a place that helps people really understand what do they want and how can they go out there and get it. And I think that companies are really part, important part of the equation as well, because so many of them in the past, you know, they just focused on hiring as this very transactional thing, like, oh, we got to get a bunch of butts and seats. But if you find the right people for the role for your organization, they are going to be so much more fulfilled, productive, engaged. And so we really have to work with organizations from the CEO all the way down to the recruiter or the hiring manager to really help them understand, you know, what sort of person is genuine going to be happy in this role or at this company. So I want to talk about that from both perspectives because you walked in here and there were two people sitting in the lobby of the recording studio of CDM where we record this podcast. One of them is a member of my team, Hayden, who all the listeners of this podcast know. And one of them was a young woman that we were interviewing because we are trying to grow. And I've, I can't tell you how hard this has been to mm-hmm. We're a small team, so I feel like every hire is really, really important. Absolutely. But not just from the perspective. I also feel like, hey, who would not want to work here? Because I think we (laughs) all have a lot of fun. But from the perspective of finding the right person who can grow and, and sort of go with the flow, but also from their perspective, I've had a couple people say, I love your work, but I don't think this is for me. Mm -hmm. So how as the job seeker, do we get in touch with what we really want? Yeah. One of the most important pieces of advice is to start with your values. I think that so often people start with what's the job that I want and all sorts of other places. And those are important things to think about. But I really encourage people to start with what do you value uh, in your life more broadly and on a day-to-day basis. For some people, Uh, prestige is really important. Other people would go crazy without a lot of flexibility or autonomy. Mm -hmm. Some people thrive on creativity. Others, um, you know, it it, it might be compensation. And of course, all of these things can be good for lots of people in small quantities. But we in the book, we actually listed out a, a long list of values and we asked people to pick the top three. And really, and it doesn't have to be the same values forever. I think this is one of the things that makes finding the right career path so challenging is what you need, you know, at the beginning of your career might be different later on in your life. And that's okay. That's one of the reasons I think we're seeing people undergo several major career changes in their, you know, over the course of their career. Um, and once you really start to zero in on the, the things that are really core and important to your career satisfaction, it allows you to make much better decisions. Because I think that finding the right job, the right company, the right career, it's a lot more like dating than most people think. You know, it's it's not, I don't necessarily believe in this idea of like the best workplaces for everyone because what you or I want in an organization might be different. And I think it's it's what makes the world go round in romantic relationships that people have different ideas of what's, you know, funny or adventurous or, or all of these different qualities that make people so diverse and interesting. Um, and companies have personalities and they different roles and different functions have different limitations and opportunities. And, and once you position it that way, I think that it, um, it can become a lot more personalized. I think one of the most important things you just said is that it changes with you. It's not the same from day to day. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how different what I want today is from what I wanted five years ago. And five years before that. It's a real organism. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And that's why I also think that trying to plan your career 20 years out can be 
really overwhelming for a lot of people. We actually encourage most people to just think two to five years out. And of course, you want to be conscious of long-term needs and plans and aspirations, and those are very important. But what you want, to exactly your point, what you want and need out of your career to find it fulfilling is going to change. And so thinking about your core values and and what is going to solve for those best in the next few years can be a really powerful place to start. Okay, now flip it for me. If you are the employer, we have a lot of small business owners that listen to the show. We also have a lot of people who hire in corporations. How do you find the right person? I mean, it, it can take six months now. You don't want to fail. It absolutely can. And I think that getting a higher wrong is so painful for you and for them. And so we really encourage people to put in the time to do it right. I think that one of the best ways to do that is to step back uh, before you start interviewing candidates and really think about, of course, people think about what are the skills that are important in this role. And that's that's very critical. But also think about what are the uh, values that are important for this person, either because of the role or the larger organization. So, for example, we also really encourage companies to screen for values and to be transparent themselves about what's good and bad. Um, we worked with a, a media company at The Muse that was suffering from pretty high turnover. They would bring people in and uh, a fairly large percentage of them would leave because they had a kind of always on, we chase the news, the news doesn't sleep culture. And people would get in the organization and say, that's not what I signed up for. I don't right. I don't want this. And we really encourage them because a lot of what we do is helping companies better understand who they are and then articulate that to candidates so that people can really opt in with an enthusiastic yes or opt out with a no thanks, that's not for me. And so we really encourage this company, you need to be so honest and upfront in all of your recruiting materials, in your face-to-face conversations, on your website with this the, the passion, which is a great thing that drives your people, but also the fact that working here requires some of that nights, weekends, always on. And you will find people that raise their hand and opt in and are jumping with, you know, with, with joy at that opportunity. And you will also turn a lot of people away. And that is great. That is a good thing. It's fascinating. I'm listening to everything that you say, hanging on every word and thinking, okay, am I being honest enough with people? I have told people that the first three months of working for me is not a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> just because there's a lot to learn and, and often people don't come in knowing all that much about personal finance. So there's, there's kind of a steep, there's a steep learning, learning curve. curve. Before we move on to the growth of the muse and how you've raised money for this site and really expanded, I want to remind everybody that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments, and Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives, and that means taking charge of our career and our earning power. We deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find many more conversations like this one with Catherine Minshew. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We are with Catherine Minshew, CEO of The Muse. So you have just been out raising some money. Yes, we um, we closed our latest round of funding about, uh, I guess, a little over a year ago. We raised $16 million to grow and expand the business. And, um, you know, it's, it's always uh, quite a process to go through a, a major capital raise like that, but it feels so great to be done with it. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it allowing you to do? 
Yeah, for us, you know, when we initially set out to scale the business, we are entering a space that is very, very competitive. When you think about the big job search sites that people go to today, there's been LinkedIn uh, for, you know, almost the last decade. Indeed um, has captured a huge amount of mindshare around just having this kind of massively exhaustive library of, of, of all of these jobs. And yet we felt like there was a real gap for a site that was much more personalized to the individual and that helped you find the right fit, like we were talking about before. But doing that um, is, a, is a big task. And so we wanted to be able to build out our engineering and data science teams to increase the way that the site responds to you based on what we can learn and what you tell us about your specific career goals. We just launched a product that I'm very excited about called Discussions, where our community, which contains so much incredible advice uh, within it can ask and answer each other's questions. So if the muse itself doesn't necessarily have the advan- uh, the answer for some sort of very specific career question or vertical, the community can help respond. And we've actually seen incredible uh, dialogue since we launched that. One of my favorites was a, a 12th grader who posted um, saying that she didn't know what to major in and, uh, and she was very concerned about her inability to lock down her life goals and plan, oh, you know, in, in the 12th grade. It was amazing. So so I think that's been something that um, has been on our radar for a while. And ultimately, there's just so much more that can be done, right? When you think about the, the ease of consumer products in almost every other space of our lives, they're such vastly improved experiences to finding a job. It's still this giant gaping pain point, And I want to fix that, but it is not an easy problem. Um, and so we are, you know, we are just in the early innings of uh, tackling it. Well, and it's the first problem that you have to fix in order to fix any other problem in your financial life, right? If Absolutely. you don't have an income, nothing else is going to work. Yeah. So it is huge. Not to mention that when people are disengaged and dragged down by the wrong job or a toxic workplace, it saps their energy and motivation in almost any other area of life. And so I really think the impact of helping people have the information, the autonomy, the power to really take control of their career is so, so powerful. There is this terrible statistic that 70% of people are unhappy in their jobs, more than unhappy. They hate their jobs. That's awful. Mm -hmm. So if our listeners are some of those people, what do you say to them? Yeah, that's a great question because it is such a demoralizing, confidence-sapping feeling to be unhappy in your job and in your career. You know, we talk a lot about this on The Muse, and generally, it's important to take a step back and understand, is your dissatisfaction with the day-to-day of your role, the things you do when you show up at work in the morning, is it with your manager, with other people, or perhaps the organization, which might mean that you could find happiness doing the same thing, but inside a different company? Or is it with your career path more broadly? There are more options than ever before to learn new skills and to experiment with different ways of making a living on the side. One of the first things that I would advise anyone to do is to really understand, do you believe that your dissatisfaction is coming from the day-to-day of your role, in which case um, thinking about learning new skills or transitioning into a different type of role could be a good move? Is it coming from the people you work with, your boss, the organization, in which case transitioning into a different organization could be a good move? Or is it simply that you're in a rut and you just need to change things up or take a little bit more control or make some sort of small step towards a future that can excite and inspire you? 
If it's the first and you realize that there are core elements of the day-to-day that your role calls for that are incredibly uh, frustrating or dissatisfying or draining to you, this can be a good opportunity to lay out a plan, which does not have to be put into effect right away, but lay out a plan for how you might be able to move into a different role. Some companies are actually much more open to internal transfers than you might think, especially if you tell people that in the next year, I'd like to potentially transfer. Are there opportunities? Sometimes companies will allow you to learn skills or shadow other employees on the side to be able to get a sense for whether that day-to-day might be more fulfilling. If, on the other hand, it has to do with the interpersonal relationships, there's also, there's obviously a lot of advice about how you can work to invest in and improve those relationships. But sometimes it might mean that trying to make a bigger change and doing a similar job, but at a different organization that's a better fit with your values um, could be a good move. And so ultimately, I think that um, I would really encourage people to take a step back, note what is it that they do enjoy about what they do or the people they work with, what are the things that are challenging, and then see if you can take one small step towards fixing something or moving towards the career that you think would bring you a deeper sense of satisfaction. That one small step is so important because just doing something, I found in my own life, makes you feel so much more in control of your ultimate destiny, even if you're not going to get to that destiny for quite some time. You have to start somewhere. Let's go back to the fundraising for just a second. There is a real gender gap in VC funding. What did you learn having gone through the process now twice? And what would you tell other founders who are looking for capital? So firstly, the gender gap in venture funding is very real. The latest statistics show that less than 3% of venture capital goes to companies with female CEOs. And when you look at the number of people of both genders starting companies, it's a pretty terrible statistic. And I am, I'm encouraged, but only slightly by some of the efforts that the industry is starting to take to rectify that. It gave me a really interesting perspective on raising capital because I will say for our Series A and Series B, which are later rounds of funding, um, we had a much smoother path because the business had hit its stride and we were putting up numbers that were just so clear and obvious that people were very excited about the core fundamentals. But I think where you see some of the, at least in my experience, some of the most challenging, um, very unintentional but very pervasive discrimination is in the seed stage when businesses are just getting off the ground because in most cases, investors are looking at you as a person. Mm -hmm. They're staring you in the eye across an office table or a conference table, and they're making judgments in their mind about whether you personally can lead this company to be hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and growth. And people naturally in those cases often revert to this shorthand about, you know, do you look like Mark Zuckerberg? Um, I think that there's also a lot of markers around um, how founders demonstrate confidence and ambition and clarity of focus that sometimes manifest differently in people based on their gender, based on their background. Um, there's pretty tremendous research that investors often unintentionally discriminate against founders of color as well. So mm-hmm. that's another huge area. And, you know, when you think about all of the innovation that we as a society are missing out on because we are not allowing people from all of these different backgrounds to really 
bring their ideas to life, I think it's a really critical problem to solve. The other thing I would add is that um, Harvard Business Review recently did a study that within corporations, in many cases, men are promoted based on potential, whereas women are promoted based on performance. And I believe in my experience and, and from uh, the thousands of deals that I have now watched go through at this point in the startup world, that the same factors play out for founders. Um, people often look at these young, promising men and say, I believe they can do it. In fact, I believe the, the National Venture Capital Association of, I think, Sweden did a, a scan of transcripts and found that young men were referred to as promising, young women as inexperienced. And you feel it when you are pitching your business and there's just this deep hesitation about you personally. And so I can't say that I have a magic formula for getting past that. I pitched so many investors that mathematically I was just determined to make the <laughs> ratios work. But um, I'm a bit infamous in the startup community for having been turned down 148 times during our seed round. But I did get the deal done. I found enough people. And uh, we needed that early capital to prove out the concept that now supports a very successful and growing business today. Resilience is, I think, the most important quality that people can have today, whether they are entrepreneurs or whether they're trying to build careers from inside companies. 148. How did you keep going? <laughs> um, you know, I look back and ask myself that sometimes. I think the biggest thing for me was I became laser focused on where the criticism and where the kudos were coming from. The people that were telling me no, the people that were saying, this is a terrible idea. It's never going to work. You should abandon it. Most of them, even though they were often very successful, much more so than I at the time, they were coming from a blindness in their own experience. Many of them had gone to the best colleges. They had been introduced through their parents or their friends' connections, their fraternity brother to the, the future employer. And they'd had a career path that is only accessible to some people from certain backgrounds. And, and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But we also had thousands at the beginning of people using the site. And they would write in and say, I love this. I have never found anything like this product. Or they would be angry at us and they'd say, here are five things you could do to make this site better, which, by the way, is great feedback because if somebody cares enough to tell you what you could be doing better, especially if it's things that you want or are planning to do or are great ideas, that's a sign that you're on to a need that they want you and they're essentially encouraging you to solve. And so I just kept going back to the fact that what we were doing was resonating with the people we were building it for and that if investors couldn't see that, it was my job to keep going until they could. And so what is your advice, your takeaway for women who want to do the very same thing? Firstly, I would encourage you to learn as much about the investor you're pitching before you go in, uh, because that can be very helpful context. Some investors want you to start out immediately with growth and traction. Others are looking for the story of how it came to be. And I learned a bit later than I would have liked to how to best tailor my pitch to the needs of the person across the table. That's a basic sales technique, but it's certainly true in investing. Um, secondly, I would say that when you are able to get introductions into investors, it is much more successful than going in cold. For me, because when I started the business, I didn't know a lot of people in the tech community. I started showing up at local events and I made sure that I would get to know the other entrepreneurs because they could then make introductions to investors rather than trying to be the eighth person in line to corner the investor 
at some, you know, happy hour event. And then finally, I think it's important to take a very clear-eyed look at what you're best at and sell that. So someone once gave me the advice that there are five things that any investor might care about, roughly speaking, and it's better to be a 10 out of 10 on one dimension than a 7 out of 10 on all of them. And those are, you know, the core technology that you've built. Is it patent protected? Is there just something like really cool about the tech, which was not true for us in the early days? Second is the market you're going into. Is there a huge opportunity? Is there a lot of bugs? and interest about it. For example, self-driving cars or AI right now, hugely exciting. That can be a thing to lead to. Is it your team? Do you have incredibly impressive backgrounds? Again, none of these things were true for us <laughs> in the beginning. Um, fourth is revenue. Do you have customers? Are they paying? Is there evidence? And then fifth is uh, is user growth. Are you hitting a need in the general population or among your target users? And we decided for all of those for the seed round, we were really going to focus on user growth. And we did our best to make that so stand out that eventually people had to pay attention to us amazing story. I am so excited to keep following you and to keep following the muse and see what comes next. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. And we'll be right back. So that was hugely fun and inspiring. Kelly's with me in the studio. Hi, Cal. Hi. Yeah, no, it was really inspiring. And we have to thank Hayden because I, as I said, I met Catherine at an event years ago, at, not at an event. I met her at the show, the Today Show years ago. And um, she's been on our radar, but Hayden went to an event and saw her speak mm-hmm. and came back and said, you must get her right now. So, And she was right. She was right. There we go. Yeah, I was reading and she has a book entitled The New Rules of Work. And it reminded me of your money rules, but for work and just the information in there is really valuable no matter where you are at in your career. So I highly recommend it. Okay. Yes. There we go. We have questions. We do. Our first one is from Vicki. I recently finished my doctorate degree and started a job with a 401k and 5% match. I am contributing more than 5% to get the full match. I recently read an article that said you have until tax day to contribute to your IRA and that it would count towards 2017 taxes. Can you explain, do contributions I make from January 1st to mid-April count towards 2017 or 2018? Also, side question, is a traditional IRA and 401k the same? So the answer is, and we're going to flip her question around (laughs) there, Vicki. The answer is that a traditional IRA and a 401k are not the same. And that's why you've got some different tax treatment here. You've got until the end of the calendar year to make your 401k contribution for that calendar year. So until the end of 2017 to put all the money that you want in your 401k. When it comes to the traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, you have until the tax filing deadline, traditionally April 15th. So if you are contributing to an IRA in addition to a 401k, it'll probably not be deductible. But if you've got additional money that you want to kick in, you do have until April to do that. My dad reminds me every year right before tax day Mm -hmm. to kick in some more if I haven't met the maximum for the year. So there you go. Yep. Calendar reminders work too. And if you are heading down to the end of the year and you're feeling like you want to put more in your 401k, you got to get in touch with your 401k administrator or your human resources department because that is not as easy as just depositing money in an IRA because there there may be some more administrative hoops that you need to jump through just to make sure that the money gets to the right place at the right time. 
We'll do one from Virginia. She writes, for the past year, I've been working on getting control of my debt and have successfully negotiated with credit card companies, sold a few things to get back in control, and I even have a balanced budget now. The sad part is that even though I'm making six figures, 30% of my take-home income is going towards debt repayment in my balanced budget. It's so depressing. I feel like I could be living life so much more fully if I didn't have this burden. In about four years from now, the credit card payments will be done, and that percentage will drop to 20% or less, assuming I'm bringing home more. In about nine years from now, my student loans will be done or forgiven, and I'll be able to move on with my life. Any tips or inspiration to help get through this would be very much appreciated. Virginia, I totally get it. It seems like a really long time, and particularly in the case of those student loans, it is a long time. I would encourage you to focus not on your debt repayment, but on the saving that you're doing on the side. So if in addition to paying off this debt, that balanced budget includes a 401k that you're kicking money into, or an IRA that you're kicking money into, or an emergency savings account that you are successfully building, I want you to visit that as often as you are paying those credit card and student loan bills. Because visiting that and seeing that your balance is climbing each and every month, even though you're working so hard to get rid of this debt, is going to make you feel better. It's a little like keeping a gratitude journal. When we keep a gratitude journal, we're trying to notice that there is a pattern of good things happening in our life. And so we write down three good things that happen to us each day. And at the end of the week, we go back and we reread those things that happened every day. And it reinforces in our mind that there is good. Far too few people pay attention to how much they're saving, how much they're investing. And if they did pay attention to it, then they could feel good about it or at least better about it. So that would be my advice. I think that's perfect. Focus on the good. Mm -hmm. It's a slight attitude shift too, but the more you do it, the more positively you'll feel about everything that you're doing and feel proud of the fact that you have all of this figured out and you even have a timeline for it. Like, yeah. That's incredible. You can actually build rewards in too. You know, as you retire each credit card, maybe instead of making dinner at home one night, you go out and mm -hmm. you and you celebrate in a small way that's not going to hurt your budget, but it's going to make you feel really good. Virginia, email me. We will brainstorm ways for you to celebrate. I love doing that. And we'll do one more from Patty. And the subject of her question is exactly what we're talking about in today's Thrive segment. She writes, hi, Jean, I subscribe to your newsletter. How do I buy Bitcoin? Looking for your advice. Okay. Can we not talk about how do you buy Bitcoin? <laughs> can we talk about should you buy Bitcoin? Right. I mean, Bitcoin is a little insane at this point. If somebody had bought $100 worth of Bitcoin in January of 2011, it would be worth more than $5.7 million today. Now, there has been a lot of Bitcoin activity, but here are my three signs. They all happened in the last week that we perhaps are in a Bitcoin bubble. The first is that my son called me to ask if it was too late to get in on this. The second is that a taxi driver taking me from an airport to a hotel only wanted to talk about the fact that he felt he had sold his Bitcoin too early. And the third and most worrisome was that a 10-year-old for our in-school newsletter, which is called Your Money, we do a, a 
in-school newsletter for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders every single month. It's a project that we do with Time for Kids, and if anybody wants to take a look at your money or print it out to show it to their own kids, if you go to the Time for Kids website, all the issues of your money are up there and they're free. So that's there for you. So we were working on a story about how to save for any goal, and we asked a handful of real children, what are you saving for? And not a puppy, not a Nintendo. This kid wanted to buy a Bitcoin. And I find that very worrisome. I will answer your question. Buying Bitcoin is complicated. You can buy it on a platform like Coinbase, but consider it speculative. Before you even go that far, I want you to think about this like you would think about any other sort of speculative investment. I'm okay if you want to take a flyer with 5% of your money, maybe even 10% of your money, but it has to be a portion of your money that you are willing to lose. If you were thinking that you might invest in an early stage startup, if you were thinking that you might speculate in the work of a new artist or painter, it's very, very similar. We don't know what's going to happen with Bitcoin. We don't know if the rise of this new currency will continue, but when we learn more, we'll bring it to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Catherine Minshew for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. Please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when we will be back with a woman named Robin Arzone, who is a Peloton instructor, a former lawyer, and the most motivating person I have come across in quite some time. We'll talk soon.